Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is German-Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt, born 1906, died 1975, a very prominent and well-known philosopher, especially known for her work on politics, though she ranged very widely in her interests. Uh, she was got her start in life doing a PhD in Germany under Karl Jaspers, but that was only after she met, fell in love with, and had an affair with Martin Heidegger, an awkward biographical fact given the fact that he later became a supporter of National so- Socialism, and she, as I mentioned, was a Jew. Early in life, Arendt was a Zionist, but she left that behind in time. She did end up marrying um, twice, but uh, the second time to a German who was not a Jew named Heinrich Blücher. In 1937, she was stripped of her German citizenship. She was briefly detained in a a sort of concentration camp in France, was able to escape, emigrated to the U.S. as a refugee, and only reacquired statehood in 1950, which no doubt gave rise to the insight that in the modern world, the only way you count as a person is if you have your papers in order. A disturbing development indeed. Anyway, her life's work started on St. Augustine, but she is best known for her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and also her reportage on the trial of Adolf Eichmann called Eichmann in Jerusalem. So we will be covering a whole range of her work in our episode today. Yes, but Sarah, tell us why on a theological podcast we're discussing a German-Jewish philosopher of the 20th century. I have to say, so, well, the reason I should say I started reading Hannah Arendt is because, of course, I had always heard of her and was interested in her, but it was in the process of spending a lot of time studying communism's um, the, the the totalitarianism that is communism for my memoir that it became kind of a more urgent question for me. So I read The Origins of Totalitarianism and her book on violence and some other things related to political philosophy. Um, and I suppose in my own way, I was becoming more interested in these questions of life together in the polis. But what I found in reading her was that she was either disturbingly prescient or nothing has changed. And I'm not sure which is the more alarming conclusion to reach. But there were far too many things I was reading in her work on totalitarianism and the the implicit um, political and theological anthropology represented in her work on Eichmann, for example. Um, they're just way too close to home. (laughs) And so I thought, I guess, as part of our um, theological task as Christians to uphold the polis and the left-hand kingdom in which we dwell, that her ideas are really valuable tools for understanding what's going on, how to prevent the worst, hopefully. And um, But I think they also show some really interesting interconnections with our own understanding of theological anthropology or what it means to be a person before God and others. You know, that's really fascinating to me, Sarah, because I don't remember that I've ever uh, spoken that much to you about Arendt, but I have a a, a very important biographical connection with her thought as well. When I was a freshman at Bard College many moons ago, 1970, uh, I took a course called um, something something about the Nazi regime. I don't remember the name of the course anymore. 
But in that course, we read the origins of totalitarianism. 18-year-old college freshman reading this this huh. great book, and it made a profound impact on me at the time. Uh, so that, that was one connection. And, uh, of course, you mentioned that she began her life's work on Augustine and wrote a, uh, about the tension between Christ, Pauline Christianity and uh, Plotinus's Neoplatonism that saturates the, the thought of Augustine. And so she was quite familiar with Pauline Christianity, not surprisingly, in the 1920s in Germany when dialectical theology was the rage and Rudolf Bultmann's explanations of Paul the Apostle were gaining a lot of traction among the intellectuals, including this uh, German Jew, Hannah Arendt. And, of course, with her relationship to Heidegger, she was interested at least in passing, in existentialism. So all of those were connections that I've had. You didn't by chance know Heinrich Blücher, did you, her second husband? He taught at Bard, and I think he's buried there. I think they're both buried there, actually. You know, I don't remember Heinrich Blücher. I had a German professor. Maybe that was him, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I can't recall. You wouldn't necessarily have known at the time. He was a, he was a lovely elderly gem, gentleman, uh, who was uh, teaching me German at the time, might have been Heinrich Blücher, I don't know. I don't remember when he died, so I couldn't say. Maybe he died before that. And one, one last comment about my own biographical connection to Arendt. Uh, when I finished uh, seminary in St. Louis uh, in 1978 uh, and headed east uh, to do my vicarage on Long Island, uh, I was uh, bound and determined to enroll at the New School for Social Research and acquire a, a PhD in philosophy because Hannah Arendt was still teaching there. And I wanted to oh, study. Oh, is that right? Yes, and I wanted to study with her. And just at that juncture, the New School was in financial trouble and closed down its PhD program in philosophy. And that was uh, part of the kick in the butt from the Lord that sent me in the direction of theology. <laughs> wow. I never knew that piece of your story. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So let's get on and talk about Hannah Arendt, though, now that we've revealed our interests in her work. Sure. Well, since um, you mentioned uh, Augustine, let's just uh, touch on that briefly. So she wrote her dissertation on Augustine, and um, it's an amazing dissertation. I can't believe such a young person wrote such a, a thoughtful work and with such extraordinary erudition. But um, so as you mentioned, what the the um, thesis does, and this is something she revised her whole life long. If you get it now, it has all the scholarly apparatus explaining all the different versions and corrections she added. But um, basically what she's touching on is Augustine's real struggle to understand how love can actually work. As you said, because they have the, the she, he has the Pauline and the Plotinian streams that basically collide into each other. And so from the Neoplatonism that shaped so much of Augustine's thought worlds, there's this sense that all love is desiring an object that you don't have and, and moving you towards it. So that's the deep root of the desire as like the, the chief 
category of what it means to be human that, as Lutherans, we tend to affirm. But Augustine had a very tense relationship to it, as Arendt explains, because that means there's always a fear of loss. And as long as you are in a state of fear of losing something, or even desiring it because you don't have it, then somehow you are unfree and falsely dependent. And the Plotinian idea of freedom requires that you not fear anything, not depend on anything. And so it turns into this kind of atomized isolation as the the highest good. But Augustine, as a Christian, knows that can't be right. And so she traces out how he works in this awkward dialectic, trying to show how love for God and self and others can be real, and yet being stuck with these categories of freedom from fear and um, the problem of desiring something outside yourself kind of ties himself up in knots. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I hear the argument. Uh, to me, it's just a little too uncomfortably close to the argument that Anders Nygren makes in Eros and Agape, in which he casts deep, deep aspersions on the eudaimonism of Augustine's understanding of caritas, of love. Uh, so I'm not totally convinced by Arendt's argument. Uh, you have to recall for Augustine, there is uh, satisfaction. Love is satisfied in the beatific vision in which beholding the eternal beauty of God, the soul is, uh, is, is captivated forever in a gaze of uh, pure bliss, enjoyment. So that in the grip of this vision of God, non passe peccari, it is no longer possible to sin. And that is how the the drama of the creature's history, its its struggle between true and false loves, is actually concluded definitively with the beatific vision. So just I just want to register a little bit of a slight defense of Augustine's Christianity that he's not totally dominated by his Neoplatonism. Well, I get the impression that Arendt would actually also be critical of Nigrin um, if he was against the eudaimonism. I think that actually her problem with Augustine is that it is not possible in with with his Neoplatonic assumptions to truly love others as one ought to, as goods in themselves rather than as, as she puts it, like part of the whole body of redeemed sinners. So I think she would be more on your side and less on Nigrin's. Which read Augustine correctly is maybe the, the question at root. Yeah, these are subtle questions. And I think what you're mentioning here, you could see a, a rather more uh, consequent uh, development of Augustine's thinking this way in Jansenism and especially in Pascal, uh, where the true love of God is correlative with self-hatred and and contempt for worldly objects of love. And I think that's a little bit different than the, the way I read Augustine or the way Luther read Augustine. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, well, I just wanted to to note that because it's so interesting that she got her start on Augustine. Um, I think now let's let's talk for some time about her work on the origins of totalitarianism. It seems that she was the first person to really put out a massive study of totalitarianism and to insist on looking at both right wing and left wing forms as basically falling under the same category or having the same aspirations despite their apparent ideological differences. 
Yes, and I, I think the word totalitarianism is well chosen. It's an aspiration for total governmentality, uh, for a rationale that that totally comprehends everything all the way down, all the way up and all the way down. I've got a theory with the capital T that explains everything that has happened. And in this sense, you could ascribe the aspiration to totality already to the early Marx, who famously wrote in his notes on Feuerbach, I think it was, that communism is the key to the riddle of history and knows itself as such. That's, that's a statement of an ideological or ideational ambition for total comprehension. And of course, for us theologians, uh, we are all in favor of understanding of science, of, in, of uh, knowledge, and so forth, but with the limit, which is G-O-D, that we will never, not in all eternity, comprehend G-O-D. God will be beyond our comprehension eternally, and even now God constitutes the limit to our theoretical ambitions. Yeah, so I think one of the curious things that um, I, I got from reading this book is that totalitarianism springs as a weird but continuous deviation from two things that I know you and I, Dad, both value very greatly, which is a democratic uh, polis and the kingdom of God. <laughs> And the reason why on the democratic side is because the the, the core insight, the, the correct insight is that there should be government by the people and for the people, right, with consent of the governed and that the desires of the people are taken into account and that is what is enacted into law. But what you just described in the totalitarianism um, extreme outcome of that is that, well, if we are really expressing the will of the people in the form of the government, then the government should in fact analyze and regulate and interfere in and control every aspect of everybody's life because that's how the will of the people is enacted. So that's kind of the the, the corrupting impulse that comes out of the good of democratic rule. On the other side, I think we can see in totalitarianism something genuinely like a Christian heresy. And again, you see this equally in the right hand and left hand, or sorry, right wing and left wing versions, which is that there is this aspiration for the kingdom of God where there is perfect justice and perfect peace and everyone is properly cared for. And, you know, uh, 2000 years and still no Perusia, there have been a lot of people who have lost patience with God, but probably even more lost patience with other sinners and decided enough is enough. We're going to make this kingdom thing happen. And so to totalitarianism is secularized, but it is an attempt that that springs out of this longing and frustration that the eschatological kingdom has not arrived and finally says, well, we're just going to take matters into our own hands. Bring in the kingdom by force. What you've done here is you've taken one side of the biblical teaching, the demand that we be holy, even as our Father in heaven is holy. Uh, which is articulated in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect uh, as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
and so forth. This demand for self-purification, this demand for repentance, uh, uh, and so forth, uh, you could call this a policy of purity, uh, which is basically what the idea, biblical idea of holiness means. It means to be separated unto God, uh, to be sacred to God, and that's what sanctification is. But when the policy of purity as a spiritual practice of repentance, self-examination, and in the power of the Spirit, gets secularized into a politics of purity, then you inevitably come into opposition with others who resist you, resist you with determination, uh, and you are driven to the logically extreme but but consequent conclusion, purity requires the elimination of these resistors. And that's the tragic, tragic dynamic of every politics of purity, which no longer sees that I am the sinner in need of purification, but now locates the sinner in the resistor and comes to the dire conclusion, this enemy must be eliminated. It's interesting. So that that argument or that pattern is um, reflected in the structure of her book. So the, uh, the origins of totalitarianism. So the first um, major section deals with anti-Semitism, and she goes over its long history as being a paradigmatic of this drive toward purity, because you see impulses in like the medieval Christian West and later East that you have to um, uproot the Jews because they're like an infection in a healthy body. Yeah. Though I, as horrible as this is, I just want to say the scale of it is simply nothing compared to what secular governments did in the 20th century. So uh, just as a little ad hoc apologetics there, please don't let anyone make you think that the, uh, the Inquisition was worse than any Thing Stalin ever unleashed. Then the the second um, phase or the se- second section of the book she talks about is imperialism, and what that does is it gives rise to racial thinking and nation states and the idea of coterminous ethnicities and language with national borders, and then finally that people have to be bureaucratically documented in order to exist, and these two things simply arise together. And I mean now it's un- it's unthinkable like. Like, you, you can't imagine a world without passports, can you? I mean, it just is like an, an un, unthinkable reality. But that means, as, as we have you know seen in many examples, still in our own time, undocumented people are the most vulnerable people. And as she points out, the the just horror that you don't exist as a person unless you have your papers and unless your papers are in order. And then the third phase for her finally is this where the imperialism still sees the enemy as an outsider in some sense, but totalitarianism takes it one step further and says, now the enemy is on the inside. Uh, I think the phrase we use nowadays is domestic terrorism. And the idea then is that the government has the right to pursue its own citizens because they are the bad guys that must be uprooted again in the pursuit of this, this pure polis. 
And the, that's what gives rise to the police state, to the informers, to the um, evil compromises forced on people if they want to just even live their ordinary lives. And she is very insistent that totalitarian patterns can easily emerge in societies uh, that are not explicitly, openly dictatorial or totalitarian. But that that habit of mind of turning uh uh, having bureaucracy rule on the one hand, which looks innocuous, but then looking for the enemies within and trying to eliminate or contain them. You know, Sarah, it's fascinating to me. Now, I read Origins of Totalitarianism when I was 18 years old, and currently I'm 68. So I read this book 60 years ago, and I can't say 50, that— it, f- 50 years ago. 50 years ago, and I can't say that it's fresh in my mind, Right. Uh, but the lessons that I internalized from it, uh, you're you're making me become aware of this because in my book before Auschwitz, and in a, a article I just wrote for Dialogue, called um, uh, Hitler's uh, Theology: uh, A Cautionary Tale for Today's Peril, uh, I've argued in the last uh, t- decade rather fervently that fascism which can be left-wing as well as right-wing. Fascism is an endemic modern possibility, especially in societies where uh, democracies, constitutional democracies, have forgotten their history and their origins. And this, these kind of mass phenomena, mass atomization of, of the people into mass masses together with their um, the development of bureaucracy, or it's being called deep state, uh, in some places in the United States now. Uh, these are all factors that go into the creep towards uh, totalitarian ideologies. And I, I, you know, I've said repeatedly the United States of America is in danger of what can be called Weimarization after the Weimar Republic of Germany in the 1920s. That's the, the living laboratory in which Arendt experienced uh, these dynamics before she escaped to the United States. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I have to say, reading her alarmed me at a level. Um, uh, well, of course, current events don't help either. <laughs> As we record this in the early part of, of 2021, what I, I think is so striking is that she says again and again, it can happen here. Don't ever say it can't happen here. And a, a great deal of the book is kind of analyzing the conditions that uh, led to this atomization, as, as you mentioned there. And, um, you know, just just talks about all the ways in which um, the change in industry and the disruption of village life, um, to a certain extent, the loss of religion, the loss of class solidarity, the loss of an ordered world in which you knew your place. I mean, we we tend to think as as, um, modern Americans that um, class must be evil and having a place must be evil because it means you can't move. And there certainly are real evils that go with it. But to have no place at all means that you are a simple floating atom and you are just going to be pulled into whatever, you know, tractor beam <laughs> can can grab you and suck you in. And so, yeah. I mean, the 
the the particular conditions we have now are something she could not have foreseen. But there's so much rage expressed through social media, and it is not this is really disturbing. It's not anyone's fault or plan. It's actually just the built-in reward system of the algorithms that are set up basically to maximize your time on a platform. And it turns out what maximizes people's time is getting really pissed off and feeling like they have to rebut what's going on. And I think early on we thought, this would be a way to connect like-minded people and foster discourse, but it does, <laughs> it only, it only connects people in very toxic and artificial ways. And the discourse is not real discourse. It's just hostility. But I, I think one of the reasons why things have looked more alarming lately is because precisely this phenomenon of um, atomizing and uh, extremely individuating people, tearing apart their bonds or preventing them from even forming real meaningful like deep family clan regional bonds like human beings have always i mean evolved to have uh the the loss of all of those things makes us unbelievably susceptible to mass movements and for her mass mass movements are the ones that end up not not just getting sucked into totalitarianism but enthusiastically becoming a part of it and supporting it and giving themselves to it Yes, we certainly have seen that in the last uh, tw 20 years of American politics, that's for sure. You know, another factor here is that Arendt points out about bureaucracy is that it becomes this, uh, this social control web that constrains every aspect of life. And the curious thing about it, particularly in a country whose ideology is democratic, is that no one is responsible. Every bureaucrat simply refers to the system and what the rules say. And so, and I'm just following orders and I'm just doing what I'm told and you have to conform to this or else. Authority is deferred and no one is ever accountable for anything that the bureaucracy does. And if anybody tries to be accountable within the bureaucracy, they're punished. Yeah, exactly. She in in her book on violence, she talks about bureaucracy as the ultimate tyranny because you can never find the power because it's ruled by nobody. It's ruled by procedures and forms and paperwork that take on a life of their own. Of course, Kafka is the great literary genius who first captured what it was like to live under a bureaucracy where where Nothing. There was never any end. The buck never stopped. It just kept passing. And <laughs> it's extraordinary that people die in huge numbers because of bureaucratic rule. Um, it's But it's a real problem, you know, because one of the reasons we have bureaucracies is because of the sheer size of our populations now and the scale on which we operate. And there's a, a real question of at what level can we scale and do we have to scale in order to live in our super interconnected world? But on the other hand, how quickly the scale fails to account for actual individual lives. There's no longer any personal relationship. It actually, I have to say, gave me a fresh appreciation for a congregation that has a pastor 
or a network of congregations that have a bishop or, you know, whatever kind of leader and actually like having real people who are personally accountable for what happens and what is said. And um, it, it we again, we've absorbed this idea that that is always and only authoritarian if it's not somehow collective decision making. But collective decision making can be a way simply of no one ever being responsible. And I think she's she's really forced me to see that it's not it's not as simple as, um, you know, let's all put our heads together and come up with a good policy or a form to fill out or a collective decision. It might just be that nobody takes responsibility for it. And that ends up, I think, being far worse. Yeah, I think you can make two connections with contemporary political life in America that the last two presidencies and evidently the incoming presidency plan to uh, act in the default of the legislature by executive orders. Obama, Obama famously said, I have a pen and I have a phone. And then Trump's, you know, famously issued executive order after executive order. And now we're reading uh, that uh, Biden is preparing a slew of executive orders to redirect the bureaucracy away from the directions that Trump directed them against the direction that Obama <laughs> had directed them. And the irony of all of this, of all of this, is that the legislative branch, which is supposed to make law, has is paralyzed and can't do anything. And therefore, the actual direction of the bureaucracy defaults to the executive branch in the United States. And this is a very bad development, I think. And I think that's how Arendt shows that bureaucracy gives rise to the strong man, because finally there's such desperation for that personal leader to come forth and break through the obfuscation that you, you end up being more authoritarian and more centered on a single yeah. figure of power than you would have been in the first place. Yep. Well, I think talking about bureaucracy makes a nice segue to Eichmann in Jerusalem, don't you think? Oh, Yes. Well said, Dad. Well said. Okay. So uh, Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi bureaucrat who um, managed to get out of Germany when the Allies were rounding up all the bad guys and putting them through the Nuremberg trials. He escaped to Argentina. And then in 1960, the Israeli army, this is the, the very new and still rather fragile state of Israel formed in 1948, but um, not with the boundaries we know now and still its its existence was very much in question long term. Um, they kidnapped Eichmann uh, on a road somewhere in Argentina and brought him back to Jerusalem to stand trial, which took place in 1961. And Hannah Arendt went there um, as a journalist for The New Yorker to observe the proceedings and write on it. She was already extremely well known by this time um, because of the origins of totalitarianism and, and other work that she did. Her her eventual report, uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which was first published in 1963 and then a revised expanded version in 1964, really created a firestorm of controversy, um, and not least um, of all among Jews and Israelis who were very angry with some ways in which she talked about what happened there. Um, so I, I have... Um, I, I read the book, and there is um, a recent film that depicts her going to the trial and the aftermath of it. And there's also a very good documentary on her um, that deals with this quite a lot. I'll put those in the show notes. Um, but I think the the first thing to 
say about um about this trial is that the motivation for it, as as she puts it now, I haven't read any source other than her, but she understands the motivation of the trial to be that it was not the Jewish people or the Israeli state that conducted the trials and passed judgment at Nuremberg. That what happened there, of course, was very important, but it was the allies, it was the outsiders who... and were the ones to decide to condemn the Nazis for what they had done to the Jews. But the Jewish people themselves never had a chance to to execute this um, justice in their own way. And so several things, as she puts it, are happening. One is that the Israeli state is is asserting its right to jurisprudence as a new state. It's an opportunity for survivors of the Holocaust to publicly speak what happened to them. A great deal of the testimony was just survivors coming and saying what they'd gone through, the family members they'd lost, the torture they'd suffered, and so forth. And then finally, for um, in the person of Eichmann, for anti-Semitism in its deep historical roots, and you know, I guess in the trial they trace it back five thousand years, for finally anti-Semitism itself to be put on trial and publicly condemned on the world stage. So that, in her understanding, is the motivation for the trial in the first place. Well, what's a little bit awkward here, right, Sarah, is that Arendt discovers that Adolf Eichmann is not particularly animated by anti-Semitism. In fact, he describes... uh, his uh, friendly feelings and humane inclinations for certain Jews that he was tempted, so he speaks. Eichmann says, I was tempted uh, to find a way to spare them from their terrible fate. And so if you're going to interpret anti-Semitism as some kind of visceral, irrational hatred of Jews and put Eichmann on trial in order to condemn that, Ironically enough, Eichmann is not a very good specimen, right? Oh, he he was a terrible specimen. And he even had a Jewish mistress and bragged about that too. So, yeah, a real stand-up guy. It, <laughs> yeah, in fact, what what she found um was because I think she had done this extensive study of totalitarianism and although a Jew herself, I think maybe because she was an ex-Zionist, she had a certain distance on it. Um what she could see is that, indeed, as you said, Eichmann was not animated by any particular desire to eliminate Jews. It was just what his fatherland had decided. And he was very clear that he was a German and he was an Aryan. He was a Gottgläubiger, which means he was not a Christian, but an adherent of the kind of made-up uh, Teutonic paganism that Hitler was trying to promote, and that his highest virtue was obedience. And everywhere in the world, people value and honor obedience. So why should he, of all people, be put on trial for just doing his job? So what what the world was looking for, and especially the, the trial was looking for, was this great supervillain, superhero of evil, of anti-Semitism. And what they got was this pathetic, small-minded dude who would have been a philo-Semite if conditions had been different. And 
in fact, you know, in his trial, he said, why should I be blamed? Like, if I had lived in another time and place, I wouldn't have done this. It was just my bad luck that I would have, you know, I was lived in this time and was this bureaucrat, and then you came and caught me and decided to put me on trial. There was just simply no, there was nothing grand about his evil. It was utterly pusillanimous and pathetic. That's really something. But there was, I remember from the book, uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, one philosophically interesting episode, which I think I may have mentioned in previous podcasts, so I'll just say briefly here, that Kant, uh, that uh, that Eichmann rationalized his ethic of duty uh, with the great and glorious name of the German philosopher of the High Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, and actually gave, Arendt says, a pretty credible account of Kantian ethics, the categorical imperative that you must be able to universalize your uh, maxim uh, uh, in any particular action. And the only difference between Kant and Eichmann was that Eichmann said, uh, yes, I must universalize my maxim within the frame of Nazi Germany. And so for me, the question of duty is what would Hitler do because of the Fuhrer <laughs> principle, you know, that, that whatever Hitler would do, that is what I must do. And so he actually explains that when he was tempted, humanely tempted to spare some Jews that he knew of their terrible fate, he had to fight against that temptation to do his duty and do not what he wanted to do, but what Hitler wanted him to do. Yeah, it's it's sickening and amazing. I mean, it, it almost makes us laugh. It's so absurd, but it's it's it, it it's a philosophically serious moment because the minute you lose Kant's uh, vision of universal reason, once you uh, see that reason is historical, that there's a historicity of reason, that reason is not what's always and everywhere the same, uh, and so forth, but that reason is itself historically mutating, and so forth and so on, then you are inevitably led to the kind of thinking that Eichmann had. Given the fact that I am in the National Socialist State, whose supreme principle is the leadership of the Fuhrer, uh, my ethics must be governed by the question, what would Hitler do? Yeah, so I think this is where she comes back with her insight about what is a genuine novum or what has really changed in the world today. And so you could see Hitler's fear principle of, you know, or politics of purity, get rid of the Jews as an expression of the earlier imperialism that was trying to create, you know, um, communities that were contiguous ethnically and uh, linguistically. But what Arendt wants to argue is that the better way to look at what the Nazis did and therefore what really should have been the issue with Eichmann is not the latest and worst episode in a long history of anti-Semitism, but a new crime, which is a crime against all of humanity, a genocidal crime that has uh, in which the perpetrators have taken it upon themselves to determine who gets to live on planet Earth with them and arrogates to themselves that kind of divine position of determining who gets to live at all. And she says, and I think this is what really outraged a lot of people, 
She said it was pure historical accident that the Jews were the target of the purifying principle. And it was indeed because of this long history of anti-Semitism that they became the target. But to understand what Nazism did, and I think we would say other purges we see in uh, uh, left-wing extreme governments like communist governments or maybe happening with the Uyghurs in China now, uh, what's really happening is a scale never before seen of hatred of humanity and the determination to eliminate a portion of humanity. And she understands this to be a crime against humanity itself because of her insistence that all humanity is one and it is within the oneness that each individual is precious, unique. And there is this necessary dialectic between the plurality and the unity of the human race and the Nazi crime and all genocidal crimes are acts of hatred against the human race. uh, And therefore it affects all people, not just the particular target of their purifying action. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I basically buy that argument, Sarah, but I wonder if as theologians we couldn't push it a little bit further. Because certainly what the Jewish people represent theologically is God's election of Israel. And Israel pars pro toto, Israel as the medium, the, the, the mediator of universal blessing. Uh, and I think if we add this theological dimension to the crime against humanity that was committed against the body of the Jews, we can say with Michael Visegrad that the Jews are the chosen people of God, the body of faith. They are the destiny of the entire humanity is comprehended in this notion of the Israel of God. Uh, And so it's the way from the particular to the universal that we generally see in biblical theologies and so forth. And I think this is very pertinent to the Nazis. The Nazi, why did the Nazis pick on the Jews? Partly because the Jews represented the promise of a universal humanity at work as the work of God in the world, something like that. I think the difficulty is that what Arendt saw was not a theological trial. And it was not a state of Israel that was um, an expression of that, um, a, a direct jurisprudence expression of that body of the people of God summoned to be the blessing to the nations. But it was construed and presented in entirely, you know, secular terms. I mean, which, of course, that's what it would do. I mean, (laughs) in terms of state jurisprudence. So I think the the awkwardness here is that there there is a a difference between, um, I don't know how to say this, can you talk about anti-Semitism apart from anti-Judaism and how how would the state of Israel actually do that? Because they couldn't very well put Eichmann on trial and say, we are the chosen people of God who are meant to be a blessing to the nations, and that is what makes your crime against us particularly awful. So I think that's a move that we as theologians can make, but it isn't something that Arendt saw or I think could have seen in this trial. And I think that you know calls upon the whole difficulty <laughs> from a theological perspective of how to think about the state of Israel as a political entity today and the people of Israel as God's chosen and what that means for the whole of humanity. Exactly. No, that's exactly right, Sarah. That's a very, very, very perceptive response to what I said. 
And here's the, here is the heart of the problem. Arendt started as a Zionist. Arendt left Zionism behind. Why? Because she feared, I think, this is just my hypothesis, tell me what you think, that it was a part of the same romantic, in German language, Volkische Bewegungen, folk movements from the 19th century. Right. Zionism was just another ethnocentric nationalism aspiring to political sovereignty with a big chip on its shoulder, never again. And that has created all the paradoxical problems of the state of Israel and its relationship to the indigenous inhabitants of the land. Yeah, I think that's right on. And I think that's why she was so awkwardly perceived, because she is a Jew who's married to a German. She spoke lovingly about German literature and language, that it was her true home. She reconciled with Heidegger. I mean, even after the betrayal he committed later in life, she connected with him again. And she refused to she refused to love people as classes or nations. She insisted on loving them as they were and loving them within the larger body of humanity. And so I think I, I, I think the whole force of her thought um, demands both the acceptance of all of humanity in whatever form it takes, because we are all one as human beings, and at the same time insists on highly personal and individualized loves within that, because that is is the reality. You know, it, it really, and honestly, it reminds me of the, the usia hypostasis distinction in the no. doctrine of the Trinity, that in our episode a couple years ago, we talked about to what extent we can extend that to theological anthropology and say, Again, there is one body of humanity, and yet the body of humanity only exists as individual human bodies and all their irreducible uniqueness and historicity. And probably one of the reasons I find her so insightful politically is because I think she is trying to work through the ramifications of what can mutual governance and a polis look like if we maintain that dialectic. That's really great, Sarah. And I'm, I just want to say for the record that I'm highly approving of your new theological interest in politics. Hey, Plato said no one should get involved in politics under the age of 50. And I'm not even 50 yet. And, you know, that has always been my excuse because I just didn't know enough. But I'm getting there. You've always been precocious, Sarah. Now, not in politics. <laughs> <laughs> that That's a nice segue to another theme in Arendt that I think is extremely salient today, the distinction she makes between power and violence in her book on violence. Yeah, why don't you talk us through that? Uh, I think it's, I actually read this book way back when I was working on the nuclear deterrence issues for the Lutheran Church in America's Department of Church and Society. That was in the early 1980s, 1984, 85, something like that. And uh, I was really trying to wrap my mind around the problem of threatening mass destruct destruction, mutually assured destruction. MAD was the acronym, uh, was the policy of uh, nuclear deterrence at the time. And so people were saying that this is intrinsically violent, uh, uh, that you threaten your neighbor with extinction if the neighbor crosses the line and so forth. And somehow that just didn't seem totally right to me. And I was trying to get a deeper understanding of, of, 
of, of the problem of violence. And when I read Arendt's book, it struck me as enormously insightful because it distinguished between power and violence. And it actually argued that violence takes over when power is diminished, when power disappears, one resorts uh, to violence. And this led to a further distinction that I found very helpful, the distinction between force and violence. And this is simply a very elementary observation if you think about it. Um, Physical force, bodies in motion interacting with each other, is an indelible part of our embodied social existence. We can say uh, that, that we want our strength, we want our power, we want to be able, uh, you know, when I'm building something in my shop, I'm forcing the wood (laughs) into the configuration that I want it to be. And you can take that all over the place. It's just physics. That force is part of embodied life. You can't get away from force. What makes force violent is another consideration. And here, you know, for me, I know I'm not so sure that Arendt said this exactly, but for me, violence is a moral category. Etymologically, the word violence is related to violation. And violence is when you violate a tacit or implicit covenant. Uh, uh, so when Adam and Eve in the story in Genesis 2 are caught in their disobedience, We see the first acts of moral violence. The woman whom you gave to me, uh, uh, she gave me of, of the fruit and I did eat. And then the woman in turn says, the serpent implicitly who you created set me up. And so she scapegoats. So their harmony with each other and their harmony with nature are all now in a state of disharmony. They've been violated, these tacit covenants or relationships, let alone their relationship to their creator. And then it's not accidental that the very next story in the Bible tells of the fratricide uh, between Cain and Abel. So violence is a moral category that is related to the use of force, but is not an implication of the use of force. In fact, force can be used uh, uh, powerfully for good in all sorts of ways. That's really well said, Dad. And you see, she talks here more extensively about um, things like bureaucracy and unmet promises um, to improve people's lives that end up giving rise to violence. She makes the the observation that all historians know how few slave rebellions there have ever been in human history. And she says this is because the slaves correctly perceive there is nothing that they can do, and therefore, why try? And the ruling classes have consolidated their power so effectively that most of the time they don't even need to use explicit violence. It's simply the the possibility the violence that exists as a threat in in power. She says that what we see, when we see violence exploding, it's when there is a possibility of change or when there has been promise of change not met, as I said. And, you know, there's a... I found I found in reading this that she offended my pieties, which are that violence is never, ever necessary. And of course, I want to say that as um, a good person and as a Christian, but 
she is um, forces me to be more realistic than I want to be and says violence has always played a huge role in human affairs. It has there's basically no other final arbiter, she says. If nothing else will shift and nothing else will move, people will get violent. Now, she points out that violence very quickly takes on a life of its own and most often only begets more violence. So it is not a good final solution or any kind of solution. But uh, I think the warning she's trying to sound is if you refuse to see and address what's going on and what needs to be changed in a fair way and realistically, violence is going to emerge. And she really lays this as much at the foot of the left as as of the right. Um, we, we tend to think in America that it's the right that is uh, the violent side. But she, again, drawing on history demonstrates how much the left, uh, especially because of its insistence on everyone creating their own um, destiny that they, they cre- humans create themselves means that if anyone stands in the way of you creating yourself, well, uh, then you will end up executing violence in order to get there, even if, if the, uh, the goal is the destruction of your own individuality in the name of your you know, utopian Marxist ideal or something. You know, that uh, connects very... I, I don't know if there's any relationship between... Uh, the French philosopher Michael uh, Foucault and Hannah Arendt. I don't know if, uh, but it certainly would make sense because Foucault, uh, in his teaching that power is diffused throughout a social system uh, on the analogy of an electrical grid, you know, power just suffuses the whole system. And it's certainly not to be understood as a top down imposition. Uh, upon the lower, but it power in fact in, uh, flows through the whole system and and captivates people uh, all up and down the social hierarchy and so forth. And uh, that was a reflection that Foucault came to for similar reasons as Arendt, as he reflected on the failure of Marxism-Leninism, you know, in the 70s and 80s when it became evident to all these left wingers. Uh, French uh, on the French leftists uh, who had been communists, doctrinaire Marxist-Leninists, that the it had ended in the nightmare of Brezhnev, Brezhnev and real existing socialism, and so Foucault was trying to make a fresh start, understanding the dynamics of power, and that analysis, of course, stands behind so much of what has evolved since then. It's called critical social theory which we probably ought to discuss in another episode, not this one. Yeah, you know, just to to, to echo that, um, one comment she makes that really struck me is, much of the present glorification of violence is caused by a severe frustration of the faculty of action in the modern world. And, you know, this is, this is really striking because if I just think of myself as a political actor, I almost immediately, I mean, maybe, Dad, this is why I have avoided politics, is what can I do? Like, I vote, I vote with almost, you know, the same religious fervor as every American is incited to vote. And yet I do it because I think it's the right thing to do, not because I think my vote makes the slightest difference at all. Um, 
And I know other people are more politically active than others, but just trying to think, what can I do? We live in the largest population ever to inhabit the planet. So proportionally, your action is so small. We have the bureaucracy issues. I mean, having lived in several foreign countries, I can just tell you how how surrounded my life has been and continues to be by bureaucracy. Um, you know, I have some funny stories about what it takes to get a driver's license in another country <laughs> and certain uh, bending of inflexibility bureaucratic rules I undertook in order to make that happen. Um, it's just, you know, and I, I, I'm at the top, right? I'm in the top 1%. I live a good life. I can pretty much do what I want. But to think of how many billions of people who are in the same lock grid, no wonder violence finally seems like the only thing to do. The level of frustration and the lure of all the possibilities that are continually denied. It's just a really toxic brew. You know, that's uh, uh, maybe one final segue then for this discussion of Hannah Arendt. I would like to talk about her theory of action, political action, in the context of a book by a former student of mine, an author that you also know, Michaela Kushnierikova. Michaela wrote a book, it was based on her doctoral dissertation for the Charles University in Prague, and she wrote it in English, and it was her English is quite excellent. And uh, I actually wrote a, a, a foreword to it for the English publication by Fortress Press. But in this book, she com she she uses three main thinkers: uh, Hannah Arendt, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the Romanian Orthodox uh, theologian. I think his name is Dimitri Stanilo. She takes Arendt's description of the difference between pre-political or private life and public life. And, of course, she's making the argument that you're actually only an agent in public life. In private life, you have a domesticity uh, where there's uh, very little agency involved other than the pater familias, the, the father of the family, who is the one who rules the family within classically, and interfaces the family with the public world in the public square. And uh, that's Arendt's, uh, based on Aristotle, analysis of the difference between uh, pre-political domesticity and political agency, action in the polis, right? And she uses this uh, Aristotelian analysis that Arendt modernizes to question the, the, the metaphor of the church as a family uh, because she suggests that if you take this kind of reading of the relationship between the polis and the family, then the Christian community is a, a happy little family living in private and it can't relate to anybody in the outside world. And everything has to go through the father figure, the Herr Pastor, right? Something like that. And so she finds this to be a very uh, uh, a bad uh, thing that she's uh, critiquing. And she's critiquing it in Bonhoeffer, this metaphor of the church's family. But then she also turns tables and says that Arendt has no concept of forgiveness and reconciliation, something along these lines or at least no political concept of reconciliation, forgiveness, these kinds of themes which are so important to Bonhoeffer. 
And so she wonders how could uh, this how could this uh, be mediated? And that's where she brings in this Orthodox theologian Stanilo, uh, with his idea of Trinitarian perichoresis or communion, uh, so that my being there. Uh, in public is always a matter of mitzvah, of being there with others, being there for others. And that would be a, a model, a revised model of the relationship between church and, and polis, which allows for uh, co-humanity, being with others uh, outside the family, and these kinds of Bonhoeffer themes that she finds very valuable. Oh, that, that's very thought-provoking. I think where I've gotten in my trying to understand economics and politics and ecclesiology is the extraordinary difficulty of the little word we. Who <laughs> is we? You know, and what does it mean when you invoke we? There are so many scales at which the we can take place. And, I, you know, just since we're Americans, to bring it back to American politics, you know, the, the core issue is what does we mean for us, for we, for us Americans? <laughs> we the people, right? And there is a, a real difficulty in having a we that includes everybody. But even if we do have a we that includes everybody, how is that meaningful other than just a pious talk. What can it really mean for for us, for the we, to live together? And I think you see that also in in church. Um, what what the we can possibly mean in church and decision making and worship in relating between different um, scales and bodies of the church. It's it's um, suddenly the the least obvious pronoun to me. Yeah, I think that's that's really insightful, Sarah. And I think you the insight here is we see the power of the ideology that's really taken our denomination uh, uh, by storm, the ideology of inclusiveness. Here, inclusiveness, of course, is a recognition that we are not, in fact, inclusive, and that the we is rather a task. We must become inclusive. And we can never rest satisfied until our we is genuinely representative of all the we. Now, all, all the uh, peoples uh, in our society, something like that. So the, the we is not an indicative, it's an imperative. We must become what we claim to be. And that we do that by including the excluded in our, uh, in our fellowship. The difficulty I have with this is that it, it, it totally obscures the difference between being a church and being a civil society. I have little objection to inclusiveness with respect to democracy in the American civil society. There have been historically excluded peoples, and it is a political imperative that uh, these excluded peoples should be empowered to participate uh, in ways that won't always seem very chummy, let, let me uh, remind uh, ourselves. Uh, but this is different from the we of the church. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth and of all things invisible. That the we of the church is a confessing we. It's a we that confesses the creed. It's a we that exists by virtue of baptism into Christ, etc. I could go on and on, but you see the distinction. 
Oh, very much. And and (laughs) ironically, the far end of an inclusivity ideology is a totalizing ideology. And I, I think we just... We, who am I talking about? Without being clear about where there are limits, and there are always limits, like even an inclusive United States, um, nobody seriously wants all borders open at all times to all people because suddenly we'd have another 700 million people living in our country and it would be chaos and it would lead to all sorts of new kinds of horrible exclusions and violence. So there's, there's always... A boundedness to a we, unless you are really talking about humanity as such. And we have to keep the humanity as such in mind, but almost none of the we's that we actually encounter in real life are at that outer limit of humanity. They're always something lesser than that. And so if you have this just, um, again, blind ideology of inclusiveness, you actually are simply refusing to see where you're drawing the border and for what reason you're drawing the border. And some borders are healthy and life-giving. Some are not. Some are death-dealing. But you can't not ask the question of where the we ends. Well, that is a great segue to our topic for next time, uh, talking about the we of the church Our goal in the next episode is to make ecumenism sexy again. (laughs) A daunting challenge. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Thank you.